Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to the Fair Perspectives Podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Today, we speak with Xander Kegg, a Coast Guard veteran, award-winning licensed clinical social worker, educator, and author. He helps to develop and deliver corporate diversity training, emotional wellness, and interpersonal growth courses for FAIR. As a trans man and first-generation American of Mexican heritage with subject matter expertise on psychotherapy, social care, and emotional wellness, he brings a unique perspective to his work. In this episode, we discuss why there really is no such thing as the trans community, his experience of transitioning, why there's a reluctance to acknowledge natal sex amongst trans individuals, how gender ideology inadvertently reinforces gender stereotypes, gender ideology in K-12, a potential backlash given the movement's excesses, and how to handle the situation if your child wants to transition. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Sander Kegg. Sander Kegg, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to be here. It's an honor. Oh, it's it's going to be such fun talking to you. I, I love talking to you before. We did a panel before, back in the summertime, I think, on authenticity and identity. I think we'll touch on that stuff a little bit today. But why don't we start with, um, just give us a kind of potted biography of yourself. Tell us who you are and, and uh, why, we're, why we're here today with you. Absolutely. Well, uh, so my name is Xander Kegg. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I live in Orlando, Florida. I've been in Florida for about three years. I'm originally from California. I spent most of my, out of my 55 years, I spent 40 of those years in California. So a lot of my time in California. Um, Let's see, what else? Well, I'm first generation. Um, My family's from Mexico. I consider myself, I don't call myself Mexican-American. I say I'm a first generation American of Mexican heritage. I use the term Latino with an O at the end. Um, thank you for thank myself. You yes. Um, and thank you <laughs> on Hill for writing that that article in Newsweek about the, the other word um, people are using in social media that ends in an X. Um, and so so let's see what else. Um, gosh, there's so much. I mean, if to encapsulate, um, I had encephalitis when I was six, which means brain damage, inflammation of the brain. And I had struggles in school. And so I went into special education, ultimately dropped out of high school, but then went into the U.S. military, served in the Coast Guard. I was medically discharged. 
uh, floundered around for about eight or nine years and then decided when I was 30, maybe I should go to college. I mean, how hard could it be? And so <laughs> I went to college and I got a bachelor's degree in interpersonal communication. I, it took me three years to get it because I went to summer school all three years in a row. And so was able to graduate early. And I was encouraged to go to graduate school by my advisor. And I, I asked her once, I said, what is that? Like, what's graduate school? My parents didn't even graduate high school. So the I got my GED. So I guess I completed high school, so to speak, the requirements. Um, my father was in the military. So being a veteran, I'm not the first of the family, but I am the first in the family to finish college. And then I did ultimately go to graduate school. I went three times. I have three graduate degrees. Wow. Um, one in conflict resolution, one in theology, and one in social work. So the Master's of Social Work is what led me to become a licensed clinical social work. My work has primarily been with veterans at the Department of Veterans Affairs, with sailors and Marines for the Department of Defense, and in the community with military families, and also in private practice, to a certain extent doing like gender therapy or gender transition coaching with trans adults. I don't work with children or teenagers. Um, I married. Margaret and I met in seminary, my theology degree experience. That was about 20 years ago, uh, 19 and a half years ago. So we're about to celebrate our 20th anniversary in wow. 2022, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. That, uh, that, oh, and my involvement with FAIR. So I was first brought on as an advisor. I was invited by Bayon, uh, the founder of FAIR, to be on the advisory board. And then a couple of months later, I was invited to become a senior fellow. So that means I'm somewhat on staff. It's a paid position. And I work with FAIR. I've worked with FAIR, medicine, FAIR in medicine, FAIR diversity. I've worked at the chapter leaders and also the education part, doing some, um, helping with some curriculum design. So a lot of different things. Yeah. Wow. You, you have a, a bit of a Forrest Gumpian life, it seems like. <laughs> oh, you have no idea because the encephalitis led to paralysis. And wow. the paralysis, I had to go through physical therapy. Um, in addition to occupational and speech therapy, and I did wear leg braces. And then ultimately, by the time I hit middle school, I was the fastest uh, girl runner. I should also say I'm a trans man. So I was a, uh, my, I'm fem female in my natal sex, chromosomal sex, but I, uh, I, so I was a girl all through school. And so I was the fastest girl runner in my middle school, even though I had been paralyzed and, and was wearing leg braces up until I was like nine and a half, almost 10 years old. So. Wow. So literally Forrest Gump. <laughs> literally Forrest Gump. <laughs> you remember that oh. scene, you know? Yeah, yeah. Your magic legs. Run, Forrest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so yeah, you did mention you are a trans man, which I think puts you in a unique position amongst the FAIR advisory board to speak on some of the issues that are, you know, quite hot topics of the day and difficult for people to engage in and and, you know, find the nuance you mentioned, but just before we started recording, that nuance is anathema to, uh, you know, <laughs> cohorts on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, depending yeah. on what your argument is. You know, everybody yeah. loves nuance when it's in their direction, right? But yeah. It um, seems like it's a bad word now to say nuance. You know, it's yeah. like if you if you take a nuanced position or you can see from the perspective of nuance, it's uh, it, it's it's a pejorative in the sense that Oh, you're like a fence sitter yep, or right. you're indecisive. Sidesism. Yep. Yeah. That all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like, I no, that's that. not what it means. <laughs> I get that all the time. Both sidesing. I'm a, I think, I think there is no more straw manned group than a centrist. 
Everyone, everyone hates them. That's all they know for sure. <laughs> I don't even think that's a group. I don't think. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't even know. A group. It can't really be a group. But, um, but it is, it is, you know, whoever they are, they're, they're pilloried with equal fervor on both ends. Um, I think people use a lot of different terms to describe themselves. I say, I'm a centrist. I'm a moderate. I'm an independent. I'm a libertarian. You know, and they don't all mean the same thing, but I, I think people think they are synonyms. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think it is to signal a certain kind of um, heterodoxy, a certain kind of detachment from, you know, major poles. And, and I think, you know, political discourse here in the United States is very bipolar mm. um, in general. So, so, you know, that all those labels are merely a, a way to kind of signal some sort of heterodoxy, which... I think you actually do possess uh, as a as a public intellectual, um, as somebody who with a lot of experience in in a topic now that is kind of gripping parents. Um, it's 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 coming up a lot in in popular culture. You know, I mean, just a few days ago, I read an article about <laughs> the official Quidditch game is actually uh, changing its name because it wants to dissociate itself from J.K. Rowling because of her anti-trans view. So, so it is really hitting mainstream in a way that, that, you know, like critical race theory is as well. So Xander, I'd like, I'd like to explore actually, how is it that you find yourself among, to the extent that there is a trans community to be uh, on the side of uh, the heterodox thinkers in, (laughs) in the trans community? Well, I like that you use the word heterodox because I've been using that word a lot more recently because I think it does encapsulate better. Um, And it also uh, people don't know what it means. So they ask about it rather than thinking they know what centrist or moderate. No, they they know what that means. So I I appreciate you using it. Um, I agree with you. I don't think there is such a thing as a community. The trans people were not a monolith. We're very diverse because it would make sense, right? If you think it through, we come from probably every country on the planet. Uh, we are raised within uh, families from very different socioeconomic starting places, different races, ethnicities, religions, no religions, right? So we come from a very diverse place. And that diversity comes into our community quite often. And then you have sort of like the individual in um, variations that are more specific to like uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. So you have trans people, trans men, trans women, um, other terms that people are using now that are different from that, like the non-binary members or agender. There's a bunch of, you know, you know, Facebook has like a bunch of them. So the like so our starting off place with sexual orientation also differs you know someone like myself went through lesbian community before becoming before transitioning and living as a trans man um whereas some some members of the quote trans man community were married to men and have children and were living a heterosexual woman's life right and it's the same in the trans women's community you have trans women who made their way into the trans female identity um, or trans woman identity through the drag culture, right? So through the gay community or the cross-dresser community, which is the straight men's world, right? And so that's very different, whether you've come from the straight man's world, married to a woman with kids or not with kids, or you've come through the gay community as a drag performer, female impersonator, something like that. Like that's very different realities. 
And so we all are shoved together from all these differences and somehow expected to think alike. And we just don't. Right. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um, and How so, is it that you don't think alike? Well, you there's a particular. lot of things. Yeah, uh, for in particular. So, well, I'm not a registered Democrat, and I think that's quite alarming to people. Um, I am literally an independent, registered independent voter. And so that's that's considered, you know, a somewhat of a heresy um, in the United <laughs> States. I do acknowledge that I have a chromosomal sex. Um, you know, I have an XX, you know, uh, chromosome sex. And so that means I'm I'm female. And I know this to be true because I had a hysterectomy where they removed my uterus and my cervix and my fallopian tubes, right? Like, so I know that I had the considered the quote unquote female reproductive system. And so I acknowledge that. So oftentimes I'll say to people, I'm a female sexed person that lives in the world as a man, or I'll say I'm a man with a, you know, female sex. I say it in different ways, uh, mm. just what makes sense at the time. And so I acknowledge that I acknowledge my chromosomal sex, my biological sex, my natal sex. And the pushback from from members of the trans community and those who consider themselves to be our allies or now people are using the word accomplice is that because disorders of sex differentiation or what some people refer to as intersexuality exists, that there's all these different. It's not just XX and XY. There's these various anywhere from, you know, you can hear from a dozen to 30 to up to 60. I don't even know how many differentiations there are, but because that exists sex technically can't be binary. Well, that's technically true because if all these other chromosomal amalgamations exist, then of course there's more than just XX and XY, but it's pretty rare. Um, and it's not just in humans, right? It's, it's in the animal kingdom. So that's like, I don't take that argument. I just, um, I, I, I let people have it though. If they want to say sex isn't binary, I'll be like, okay. Like I don't push back on that. Um, but at the same time, I'm not going to deny that I have the chromosomes that are the biological sex female. So that that's that's another way in which I'm I'm very different. But I'm not the only one The the problem is that and I'm sure this doesn't surprise you or your listeners for the most part. And that is that uh, because we're not a monolith where there's not agreement in the community. And so all of the trans people that are tweeting or posting on other social media sites about what's right and what's wrong and what are the do's and don'ts, they're maybe attempting to speak for the community or they're taken to be speaking from the community, but there's no such community to be speaking for or on behalf of. But the media takes it as if it's a statement coming from, you know, the Martin Luther King Jr. of the trans community. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because so much of the liberal project, right, the, the, you know, small L liberal project was to disabuse people of stereotypes and disabuse people of these things that would, you know, pigeonhole people and put them in boxes and uh, give people false impressions that they understand who this person is because they're a member of such and such group. And then here we are kind of reversing that by, you know, inadvertently, I'm sure, but, but we're reversing it because we're kind of just assuming you know, all trans people think the same. They all have the same opinion about this, these, these particular issues. And I mean, the same thing, there are a lot of analogs with race uh, conversations. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit too. Um, Cause I do want to ask you, but it, yeah, it's just an interesting thing that 
we're kind of crawling into the the boxes and we're kind of pigeon, pigeonholing ourselves in the way that we discuss these things and one another. And, and happily, everyone seems to be content about the pigeonholing as long as it's, you know, it fits a certain ideological shape. And, but you're, you're so, you're so willing to break out of that and to be heterodox and to kind of, you know, challenge that. I'm sure that doesn't, <laughs> I'm sure that doesn't land well with many people. So I'm curious what it's like for you to engage in that way. Well, I mean, I, I like that you bring up sort of, of the idea that, you know, there, there was a, there was a time when, you know, we, we would have been screaming if people were trying to, in today's language, police our language or police mm-hmm. our identities. But I've always been countercultural, right? But I was countercultural in a way, like you mentioned, I was countercultural in a way that worked well for the community that I was part of, but not for the broad mainstream society. So I was a little tomboy, um, and that was somewhat acceptable, right? totally acceptable for my father who was raising me as a single parent, but not so much for my mother or my grandmother or my aunts, but it was fine in school because it was the seventies and everybody was going towards that sort of unisex, you know, co-ed thing in the, in the seventies. But then as I got older and older, you know, the, that countercultural movement started to upset things a little bit more as far as maybe going out for jobs, you know, I was too masculine maybe for, for particular jobs. My appearance was too off-putting to people, but I could go into gay and lesbian community or lesbian community because it was pretty narrow back then. And I could find solace and friendship and comfort and camaraderie because I could say, these are the experiences I'm having. But then all of a sudden, what I find really interesting is that with us, with a gender transition, so to speak, with just changing the way I look and sound because I put hormones into my body, all, all of the rules have changed in the sense that now I'm, I'm viewed as part of mainstream society, right? Not the subculture of gay LGBT community, but I'm part of the dominant, so to speak, you know, the straight world, uh, which, of course, I know very little about <laughs> because <laughs> even though I was raised in it, I really did seclude myself off for quite a while. I was 39 when I started hormones. So I was living in the sort of sort of secluded safety of LGBT community for for a long time. I was working in that community. I was mostly friends with people just in that community. So when I find myself on the outside now, so to speak, when I go into the trans community, instead of it feeling like a soft, safe landing space, like lesbian community used to feel like, it feels hostile. Um, And that's because this countercultural default setting that I have is now pushing up against those expectations because uh you're you're trans so you're supposed to espouse certain types of views you're supposed to uh challenge certain things and and i may or may not do that but i'm going to do it because i want to or not want to not because it's what's expected of me and that's my rebelliousness the rebelliousness Mm -hmm. that used to you know get me recognized as being a leader in a community um in some respects is is having a different effect and so but it's who I am at the core. I am a, I, I'm not a rule breaker. I'm actually former military and law enforcement. I'm actually a, a rule follower, um, <laughs> raised Catholic. So I'm quite, you know, like there's a sense in which I sort of do fall in line to a certain respect. But when and if I can push a boundary or test a boundary, I'm going to do it. Obviously, look at what I've done, right? right. I, yeah. I inject testosterone into my body and I've morphed myself into a completely different person. 
but my who I am at the core is still there. And who I was at the core before was, you know, a loud and proud member of the lesbian community. Now I'm just a man taking up too much space um, with my toxic masculinity, right? It's like this, <laughs> it's this really weird. I was much more, I don't know, argumentative and angry before I put testosterone into my body. Uh, so it's this really weird, you know, it's a, it's a weird, it's like a, it's like going into like a, a funny mirrors hall. Mm. It, the, the reflections, it's just like, it just doesn't make sense to me sometimes. Xander, Another- I, have, I have a question for you, actually. Do you, yeah. you know, like this denial, cause you described when I, um, when I asked you about you know, one of the views that makes you heterodox. Um, you said you, you um, actually acknowledge your, your, prena- your, your natal sex. And so that, that implies that today, like it's actually very controversial to do so. Yes. Um, why, why, why is that in the trans community? Is this simply, a, you know, just a reason to um, kind of pepper over that, that fact because there are some uncomfortable underlying implications and what are they? Well. That's such a great question. I'm going to put on my social work hat a little bit. So if you think about, think about a young boy, right? A young boy who is expressing themselves in a way that's seen as girly or effeminate or, you know, unnatural, wrong, against God, right? Insert whatever problem is as arisen for a parent or a teacher. And the result of that is that they are berated, they're humiliated, they are physically assaulted, they are sent through reparative or conversion therapies, they're enrolled into ex-gay, you know, residential camps. Um, I don't know if there are that many now, there used to be a lot in the 80s and 90s in these places. Parents would ship their kids off to tough love camps, right? Run by churches uh, to try and straighten them out, literally. Um, so just think about think about that kind of experience. Um, and now this is not a little gay boy. This is actually a, a, a little boy who has a sense that maybe uh, they want to be a girl or they think they are a girl or you know what I mean? Like there's some sense. It's not, that's not been my reality. When I was a little kid, I never thought I was a boy or supposed to be a boy, but this is a, this is a not standard, but this is a common narrative that you hear specifically in, in trans men and trans women community is that they knew from a young age that they knew were this other, they were this other thing or this other person inside. And so if you think about the harm that's caused to that little psyche, right, to the, to the mind and the heart of that little child, that they might grow up to be somebody who's very angry, just traumatized, and it spills out all over the place in wanting to push back on the expectations that because they have a male sex, they weren't supposed to grow up to be a woman uh, in, a, in a society that says freedom of choice, right? It's a little confusing, right? Do with your body what you want, which is a little confusing for somebody who's like wants to take hormones who have surgeries. And you have, so this conflict in our society about are we or aren't we pro-choice and do with your body what you want to do with it. There's, it's a liberal sentiment, but most people from LGBT community find themselves either squarely in liberal camp or somewhat, you know, with one foot in it. And so at least socially. And so the idea, so if you think about the, 
the harm that's caused to that little child and the trauma of that, that they might then grow up to be people who are pushing back so strongly against societal expectations, uh, religious expectations, cultural expectations of how they should dress, how they should stand, how they should walk, how they should sit, who they should marry, right? So some people push back from all of those expectations in a really strong way, very forcefully, aggressively, violently, right? Everybody, it's gonna be an, it's gonna be a quite a spectrum, right? So like I I had some of that as a young person. I was institutionalized actually for a year and was forced to go through fashion therapy. That's what my psychiatrist called it, where they got me all dolled up and paraded me around the psych unit, having the male staff and patients catcall and whistle me to reinforce my femininity. Right. It's right. But for me, I'm an externalizer. So I thought these people are silly. This is stupid. <laughs> um, but well, I'm going to do it because if I don't do it, I'm going to get in trouble. And so I'll do it. But but then I get the rewards for doing it, like getting to watch Dallas Thursday night or go home for the weekend. You know, I had I, I was very much, you know, the incentive worked for me, but I didn't take it to heart. Some people really take this stuff to heart. They internalize all of those messages and the ones who internalize the most, I think are the ones who are pushing back the strongest. I don't encourage, I don't endorse that. I I think there are other ways, you know, good psychotherapy, but there's a pushback on psychotherapy in the trans community, you know, maybe not for gender transition, but maybe for life's circumstances, uh, psychotherapy would be better. So that that's my social work perspective. I think also on top of that, there's just the reinforcement through social media of all of the um, positivity that comes from fighting the issues or fighting people. You get a lot of people sort of, you know, banding with you and, and reinforcing you. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to help somebody who maybe feels lost or lonely or disconnected to feel connected and like they belong, right? So I think there's different issues feeding it. and then. I mean, let's not be silly. Some people are just jerks and, <laughs> and they're, and they're just, they're just trying to destroy people's lives because they get a kick out of it. But I don't think that's the majority. I think the majority are acting from a place of trauma. Well, I yeah. think most people pushing the, the gender ideology that say gender is, you know, purely a, a social construct and, and sort of ignoring or overriding um, the concept of biological sex altogether are not even trans. So there, there, there seems to be that other, other thing, right? That just a lot of people that you see on TikTok or whatever are, are, are not trans individuals, but, but are still promoting this. And it's very, uh, you see this actually among say teachers now in K to 12, um, you know, right. professors, um, in university, university students. So it, it, it's starting to become more and more widespread. And it's interesting because there come, there go the, the stereotypes again that we were talking about. Right. I mean, they were parading you with a dress on, they put makeup on you. They had you, they had you right. act in these very stereotypically gendered ways. Yeah. And the, the weird thing is, I mean, those were the people trying to, you know, quote unquote, fix you mm -hmm. because there was something wrong with you. But then there's the other end of it where the people who, who are, you know, ostensibly on your side, they are pro trans. They're also pushing those yeah. same sorts of stereotypes. So it's just very strange that everyone has kind of just abandoned this idea or, I mean, seemingly abandoned this idea of, you know, just because of your biological sex doesn't mean that any behavior 
you exhibit is supposed to be one way or the other. You know, that we, I thought we were going there. I mean, growing up, when I was growing up, it was, it was very much like, oh, well, how come boys can't wear pink? You know, like we were all, we were questioning those things and mm-hmm. we realized that so much of it was ridiculous. Right. I mean, I'm like growing up, I'm like, well, no, I want to learn how to cook. Like, why should it just be that my sister knows how to cook, you know? Yeah. And it's how ridiculous. come I can't, right. It's just crazy. And, but we, there's a weird reversal of that sort of thing where we're leaning more into those in an attempt to break what we understand as rigid structure, but we're kind of just switching the structure and detaching from, you know, there's also the thing I would love to hear you um, talk about, which is, you know, my understanding growing up was that there was, you know, they were used kind of interchangeably, but sex and gender were distinct. And there was a difference between, you know, say gender and gender identity, what you, what you perceive yourself as feeling versus what your gender is, which is used interchangeably with sex, right? And then there's this whole other thing growing up. My understanding was, yeah, you know, trans people are people who feel that they were born into the wrong body. And I remember you mentioning in um, the webinar that you did recently, the FAIR webinar on, on this topic, that you never felt that way. You never felt you were in the wrong body. Yeah. But you, but you are a trans man. And so I'm curious, yeah. what, what's going on there? What, what's the, what am I missing? What's, what's the thing that I've skipped over? Well, I, I wanted to jump back just slightly to say that, you know, I remember this like sex and gender, you know, using the word synonymously because gender shows up on like a job application Whereas sex is on your driver's license or your passport, right? So government documents, because sex is a legally protected category and gender was not up until 2020, June of 2020 with the Bostock decision. So, but, but gendered was, was literary, right? Like, like a a boat had a gender, a car, (laughs) right? We, in, in literature, we use gendered terms Um, in certain languages, Latin origin language, the terms are gendered. But for an individual to have a gender, um, I don't know if he's exactly the the uh, the person who came up with the entire concept. But I know that Dr. John Money was very influential in in this idea of of gender as a concept that applies to humans, and that you know you could raise a natal boy as a girl or a natal girl as a boy, and they would never know the difference because gender was completely socially constructed. Right. That's the idea. And so but if you read the book as nature made him, uh, you'll learn that Dr. John Money's um, experimentations were flawed and failed. Um, and it's just not true. that <laughs> You know, you could just raise a girl as a boy or vice versa and they'll never know the difference. Um, right. By the way, but- I just want to I just want to actually share a little story because that did happen to my mom. She you know, because in Asian culture, they prize males. So she was the second born daughter. She had an older sister. And that's what they tried to do. They actually tried to raise her as a boy. They gave her a male name and they sent her to school as a boy. She, it wasn't until one day she peed in her pants, her school uniform. And the teacher had to bring her to the restroom and they undressed her and they were like, oh my God, she's not a boy. Um, luckily, they didn't have activist teachers at the time. It was a Catholic school and they made the, the necessary connections. My grandmother, my great grandmother got a year full. And uh, it never happened again. And when I asked her years later, I'm like, were you confused at all? She said no. And, and you know, eventually she uh, 
she was a model. Like she was, she participated in the Miss Singapore Universe pageant. She was as feminine as you, you can imagine. And so I, I got a yeah. firsthand view of this rejection, like, like blank slateism in general. It's just not. No, no. And I, I would imagine, you know, I may be wrong. You can let me know, but I would imagine in your mother's circumstance, um, there was a strong desire for that, for that second child to, to be able to stay at home, to, to not have to go off to an orphanage or, mm. right. Because what was it? One child rule back then? And- oh, no, no. Th- yeah. That, that was China, but it, no, in Singapore, that's where it oh, Singapore. there was Sorry. no, no yeah, yeah. one child. Actually, yeah, there was a stop at two policy. They did stop have it. a stop okay. at two policy. They were trying yeah, to yeah. control wow. the population for, yeah. For, for yeah. That. Yeah. But now the born in the wrong body thing. Um, so, I mean, this is a fairly old narrative as far as born in the wrong body. And it, it, it comes back, it goes back to the 1800s. I'm trying to remember exactly what his name was. <sighs> he was either German or Austrian. He had an institute that was studying like sexology and, and this idea of born in the wrong body was some kind of way to explain the difference between the homosexual and this new thing. They just couldn't figure out what it was. Uh, the word transsexual was not yet in, in usage. I don't even think homosexual was used, but I think they were using a word, I think it was called invert, right? Their orientation mm. was inverted. Um, but now this was like, these people were showing up saying, no, I, I'm attracted to the sex I'm quote unquote supposed to as my natal sex, but I actually feel like I'm, I'm supposed to be the other sex. And they're like, oh, what is that? And mm. so this idea of born in the wrong body was, was, came out of that. And so over the years, over the decades, um, this idea of born in the wrong body, it, it stuck. And for, for some people, it's, it's a true sentiment. For other people, and I know this to be true because I know people have made it up, is they just say it because they think that's what the therapist wants to hear. Oh, wow. For, for other people, they just hear it and go, oh, oh, I, I, yeah, I, okay, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I want to be a boy or I want to be a girl or I think I'm a boy or I think I'm a girl. So yeah, I must be born in the wrong body. It, um, it's, it's more like they, they reason themselves into it, right? So for some people, they literally feel, you know, they do all kinds of things to try and like cut their genitals off, like as four and five-year-olds, like that's extreme. They clearly have some innate thing going on with their, you know, uh, detachment from their body, but it's not true for all of us. You know, and I didn't I didn't even know that there was such a thing as being able to go from, quote, female to male, which is kind of old language. But, I, you know, I still use it. I didn't even know that was a, a reality until I was in my 30s. I had met drag queens and I had met female impersonators and I'd met crossdressers um, since I was a young kid, actually, because my mother used to uh, produce drag shows in San Diego. So I was around, you know, people like that. I was part of, you know, gay community, lesbian community. So when I would go to the gay bars, I would see drag queens and um, but and cross dressers, you know, they would come to events. But I, I, I didn't know or didn't think I had ever seen anybody going the other direction. So I didn't really have a sense of what that was. But once I was introduced to it, I still didn't, didn't go, oh, oh, that's who I am. That's what I should do. That's what I need to do. That's my reality. It was like eight years after my first encounter with a with a trans man or a female to male trans person that I actually started hormones because um, mm. it took me a long time to think that through and come to an understanding of is that the right option for me it felt very much like a choice that wasn't 
grounded in born in the wrong body or I'm going to kill myself if I can't do it, which is another story that you'll hear. That wasn't my story at all. I've never, you know, well, I shouldn't say I've never wanted to kill myself. I mean, as a 13 year old and a 15 year old, I've had some <laughs> struggles like a lot yeah. of 13 yeah. 15 year olds, yeah. but it used to be okay to say that it used to be okay to say, I don't feel like I was born in the wrong body, but I also would say I didn't have gender dysphoria. And mm. so these are things that can get me in a lot of trouble from outside of the trans community, within the trans community, because if you don't have gender dysphoria, then why would you transition with the part of the community would say another part of the community would say, you don't have to have gender dysphoria to transition. And those two groups are at, at, a, at odds with each other. So what was your process? If you don't mind delving into it a little bit, I'm curious because you, you are so apart from all the narratives that I'm familiar with. And that I've heard growing up. I mean, I thought, you know, not that, not that there were no other options, but I never heard of another, you know, possible kind of track. So what was your track Mm -hmm. like and how did, how did you actually come to the decision that you did and, and why? So the decision, the, the way I came to my decision, I, I, I want listeners to know I'm not the only one with this backstory. So there, there are quite a few of us, but you just aren't hearing those stories, but I know lots of people with a similar story. And that is that. By the time I hit age 39, I had dealt with, since maybe age 16, on a regular basis, uh, like not daily, but at least weekly, and in some cases more often than that when I was you know, younger, the onslaught of homophobia, right? The, the, and what some might call like genderism, like the expectation that because I was female, I was supposed to express myself in a particular kind of woman, particular kind of femininity. And so since I didn't do that, I was quite, I was quite masculine. I, I um, had short hair. I didn't shave my legs. Um, I wore clothes from the boys or men's section in the department store. Right. So I was very masculine in my presentation. Um, and so that got, that got a lot of attention in the negative for the most part out in society. Like what I would regularly deal with would be either what I assumed, this is my interpretation of the looks I was getting, because I can't read minds. I saw what I, what looked to me like confusion, contempt, disgust. Yeah, for the most part, those would be the primary ones. And I would encounter from time to time more when I was younger than when I was older, because I would I was a bit more antagonistic when I was younger. And what are you looking at? You know, I would, I would sort of challenge (laughs) people more. Um, And so I would get, I would get pushback and I would get into physical fights when I was like a teenager with grown men. And like um, one time it was like the parking lot of a 7-Eleven, some guy, you know, said, oh, you effing dyke. And I turned around, what the hell do you know? Blah, blah, blah. You know, mouthing off to this grown man and got into a fist fight with him. I mean, just stupid stuff like that. Like, Mind your own business. You know, what are you doing hanging out in the 7-Eleven parking lot anyway? But, you know, um, but it was one of those things where by the time I hit age 39, if, if you can imagine, or maybe even your listeners can imagine how much that, that toll that can be taken, right? The toll that can take on, on, um, on a person as far as feeling constantly at odds with the people that you're encountering losing jobs or not being offered a job. I was literally told once, we'd love to hire you. You're more than skilled. You're skilled beyond what we even need for the job, but you're so masculine. We think that our, our clients would, would have trouble working with you. You know, somebody, I was like, I could sue you for saying that, you know, (laughs) but I, I didn't, but it, so 
it started to get to me. It's just a lot of years to go having to deal with that. And I could have, I could have taken the path that most masculine women do, which is persevered and fought the good fight. Um, but I didn't. I decided after watching a documentary called You Don't Know Dick and looking at a picture book called Body Alchemy, where both the movie and the book both depicted the like before and after images of trans men. And I thought, so if you put testosterone into your body, if I put testosterone into my body, I could just live my life as a man. And then I wouldn't have to deal with all that stuff. I could just go to the bathroom in peace. I could just walk down the street in peace. I could hold hands with my wife, my girlfriend, or my now my wife and not be verbally accosted. It sounded like a dream, mm. <laughs> you know? And I didn't get a lot of uh, reinforcement from the few people that I knew in the trans community that that was like a legitimate reason to transition. But, you know, I have my own sort of personality. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I went and saw a doctor who worked with trans people. And I, and I told her exactly, I didn't make up any stories. I said, I want to be able to walk down the street without getting hassled. I want to go to the bathroom without getting hassled. Um, Cause I had been accosted in women's bathrooms a lot, not by security guards. That that's not my story, but by women, especially teenage girls. I almost got beat up once by a group of teenage girls in a bus station in Los Angeles. Uh, Cause they thought I was a, uh, I don't know who, what, what group of teenage girls literally wants to beat up somebody they think is a man in the bathroom, though they knew I was a lesbian, right? Mm. It was just homophobia. And so I just, I thought, well, I'm going to try it. And I, this is what I said to the doctor. I said, I'm going to try it. I'll stop if I don't like it. It's been 16 and a half years. I'm still doing the testosterone. I actually like my life a lot. It didn't solve all my problems. I didn't think it would. Life is not easier as a man, which I thought it might be. <laughs> uh, you get any life, privi more privilege? <laughs> no. Yeah, you didn't, you, didn't get the, yeah, you didn't get the privilege in the mail? I didn't. It didn't come. Yeah. I'm yeah. still waiting for the delivery. <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. And when you live on both sides of the spectrum, you recognize that I gave up some privileges or advantages um, and I gained some others. Um, it's it's not a one way street. So yeah, there is the so, nuance, right? Right there. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so the, you know, that's my story. It's not as unique as most people would think, but it is uh, probably a story that most people have never heard and may never hear again. But it does exist as lots of us with the same story. Yeah, I think it's it's really valuable because I mean that's a first for me. I know I know quite a few trans people, um, but their story is very different. Their story is much more, at least the story that I was told is, you know, much more akin to the narratives that you hear. You know, mm -hmm. they they were born in the wrong body. This was some this was a process that they needed to go through in order to self actualize. Mm -hmm. um, and so to hear your other perspective, which you know I'm sure there there's more than even just that. Um, I think it's really important, um, but I'm curious if, you know, because it's so counter to the narrative that we're all so used to, or that that I am at least, I'm sure there's tension. So what is the tension like between you and those who have taken, you know, or those who are of the more, I guess, commonplace path when it comes to this? Well, I mean, one, one line of, of pushback for a, a story like mine is that, um, it would have been, 
people would have, have appreciated if I would have stayed in the fight and fought against homophobia, mm. right? And not, not quote, took the easy way out, so to speak, um, and leave my sisters behind. You know, I abandoned the sisterhood um, to take the easy way out. And it's like, well, one, it's not easier. <laughs> and two, um, at the same time, aren't we living in a society now that's, um, that's pushing this idea of lived experience being the most valid claim to reality and also the, the sort of uh, psychologicalization, so to speak, of, of our society. This idea like if, if, if my goal was to bring um, more balance and more wellness or well-being into my life, why isn't that valid, right? Why is my lived experience any less valid than somebody who feels born in the wrong body? Why is my um, journey to well-being in my way less valid than somebody else's journey? So that's where it gets a little, uh, it can get a little tense is uh, this idea of, of lived experience because when somebody like myself has my own version of lived experience, it doesn't match up with people, what people associate or assume is the correct one. Instead of just sort of scratching their head and going, oh, well, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. And I could say, oh, I can introduce you to some people who have a similar story. No, they just they want to push back on it or or reject it outright and then claim that I'm not really trans. It's like, Actually, well, it's I'm living in the world as a man. So that seems trans to me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Right. Actually, Xander, it, it seems to me actually globally, your experience is not as rare as it might be here. Mm. I mean, in, in Iran, for example, some countries like Iran being, you know, having like homophobia is a very big kind of impetus to to transition because gay people, you know, if you're gay, you're, you're sinning against Allah. So they'd rather you just transition and be, you know, a, a different sex so that your orientation is, is correct. It's in accordance to, to yes. a religious doctrine. So it seems to me it's more, your, your story is actually common globally where, where people end up transitioning because being, you know, gay, having you know, the, the, that sexual orientation, it's in and of itself, it's just not accepted in their societies. Yeah. I mean, the only, of course, I think we don't have to necessarily say it, but I will say it. The primary difference being that um, it's a choice I made versus the government making that choice for me, which is unfortunate. I mean, the level of homophobia um, in, in certain countries, you know, for, today. Yeah. Yeah, for religious reasons, um, it makes perfect sense to me that somebody either might escape that place, that country, or they might do whatever they need to do to live, you know, in some sense of peace. So we, thankfully we don't have that, uh, but it, it's just one of those things where ultimately when we have us, when we live in a society where we're free to think and live and make choices about things, people are going to do that in, in very different ways. And I, I'm fully behind that. It's like, if, if you feel like if you didn't transition, you were going to kill yourself. All right, man, transition. You feel like you're born in the wrong body. All right, man, have some surgeries, take some hormones. Like, you know, you're an adult. You could do what you want to do, you know, and I did it. Um, you know, it worked so, for me. So, so let's step back and, and actually look at this issue 
in terms of what is going on right now in terms of America's youth, especially in schools. Um, I, you know, like you said, I think people should be free to, to make that decision for themselves. But are we at a point where, where we're, are we, you know, indoctrinating kids a little too early? Um, what is your view on, on how this is intersecting with what's going on in education right now? Well, okay. Let me, let me, let me make a couple disclaimers. Um, I don't work in education. Um, I don't work with children or adolescents as a social worker. I'm, I'm not at all well-versed in what's going on in the schools. Specifically, I know, I know a little bit more than beyond what's on social media because I'm with FAIR and I'm interacting with parents. And what it looks like is it looks like there are some schools or some school districts around the country and in some cases some states department of educations that are trying to institute a very specific uh lens or frame with which education um is is being taught and they're putting in issues that have to do with sexual orientation and and biological sex and gender identity and gender expression i'm not an expert in this but it is my understanding that there may be age-appropriate ways to introduce those topics. And so I would hope that they're not talking to, say, fourth graders like they're talking to 10th graders, right, that they're finding a way to put things into age-appropriate terms and examples. Um, I know that that's not always happening. I've heard some pretty horrific things from parents who have children that are bringing paper from back from school or it's being printed off the computer because they're still going to school at home. And it has very adult topics on it um, that are dealing with like sex itself, like not biological sex, but the act of sex, um, which seems really inappropriate at that. It was like a third grader or something. So suffice it to say that it seems that one of the primary issues that's going on that I'm mostly aware of that I don't agree with is this idea of withholding information from parents about what their kids are going through um, or what they're disclosing in the school setting. So for example, if a school, if a kid is disclosing at school to students or teachers or counselors that they think they're trans, there are some schools that are um, either electing or feel that they're by law restricted from telling the parents about this disclosure by the student, uh, by their child in, you know, in the school setting. Um, it's, I don't want to say that having a trans identity is akin to having anxiety or depression or suicidality. But what I want to say is that when a kid is struggling in school, for whatever reason, typically parents are brought in. So they're, they're making choices around one particular thing that that particular identity piece. So they might alert parents about the child's inability to concentrate in school or they're getting into fights at school, but not that they're using, you know, they, them pronouns and a nickname at school, right? And it seems to me that, I mean, a nickname on the playground is one thing, but your teacher changing your name, like in the role, you know, the role call um, and not informing parents. To me, they're, I don't, I don't endorse that. I think parents should be brought in. I understand, at least I think I understand the motivation behind it, it goes back to what I was saying about thinking about little children who are 
who are having really difficult times, especially at home when they're expressing their their gender in a way that doesn't align with the sex and the parents are. I mean, just all you have to do is just do a quick Internet search and find that there are actually parents who have murdered their boy children because they were acting like a FAG. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not Mm going to say it out loud, but I mean, terrible things, terrible, terrible. A two year old. I don't know. Son of mine's going to be a blah, blah, blah. And they kill him. Right. So these are realities. And so that that trauma has been transit has been transmitted through the history of the LGBT community, same as slavery and blacks, the Holocaust and preceding other genocides for Jews and Jewish families. Right. Internment with, you know, camps with Japanese American families, right, like specific traumas in history have been transmitted or transmuted through the culture. And so there's a whole bunch of people nowadays going, I remember or I've heard the stories of those ex-gay ministries and those tough love camps and homeless kids ending up being mostly LGBT identified. And so they're like, if we tell the parents about this thing, they assume bigotry. They assume transphobia, homophobia. They assume it to be true. And so they're trying to protect the children. I understand that. I don't think we should assume that everybody is a bigot uh, just because the teenager or the kid says it, you know, because teenagers say, oh, my parents won't understand. They'll probably throw me on the streets. I thought that about my parents, too, and it was never true. Right. So we shouldn't go. We shouldn't make those kinds of decisions based on what a child is saying. We should maybe have a parent teacher conference to suss out. You know, we could even introduce it like people do in that casual way, like oh, we had a we had an assembly the other day at school and some people did some drawings or made some slogans. and I put some up on the wall and and see how the parents react to something that's like pro gay or something pro trans and see if they respond to that in a negative way. And if they don't, then maybe you disclose about the kid. Right. I mean, I'm making up a scenario, but um, I'd rather default on parents should know how to support their kids versus parents should um, have information withheld from them that mm-hmm. might be important for them to know about their kids. So that that's kind of the one part of this that I'm the most aware of and I have the most trouble with. I do know that there is a lot of stuff being put into curriculum, both ethnic studies and uh, anti-bullying curriculum, social emotional learning. I'm a social emotional learning trainer. I know that there's a way to do it without that kind of indoctrination piece. I do it in the corporate setting and I do it from a non-woke position, so to speak, or lens. So I know it's possible, but I have heard that it's that certain certain people's agendas are making their way in through these perfectly reasonable curriculum. Social emotional learning is just about wanting to um, incorporate emotional intelligence to foster emotional intelligence in our young people so they can grow up to be, you know, well-balanced emotionally mature adults. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you infiltrate social emotional learning with any other kind of lessons, that's it's damaging to them, you know, as individuals too. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was this tension between competing good intentions. I, I don't, I think that we make, a lot of people make a mistake in assuming that, you know, there's a nefarious kind of goal here. Like they want to come and poison our our children with these crazy ideas. And I can't, I think, you know, both sides are kind of arguing that about the other. Right. But there's, in my view, it's, it's competing tensions of, we want to help these children, right? We, neither side wants the other side 
to indoctrinate their children, right? Because mm-hmm. indoctrination is negative, right? We don't want we don't want their terrible ideas being put into our kids. So we're going to get in there before they do and put the good ideas in, right? And then the other side thinks the exact same thing. So it's just kind of, yeah. you know, doing the the hands on the baseball bat thing. But we, well, yeah. we lose we lose sight of the fact that everyone, for the most part, I mean, unless they're like literally, you know, psychopaths or something, most people are trying to do what they believe is the right thing. It's just that they have a different framework and a different lens, and then they're approaching it this way. But but that's basically the 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 thing we're seeing is this tension between you know one group who sees themselves as trying to protect children from the terrible ideas of the other. And then the other group thinking the exact same thing. And so how do, what do we do about this, this tension, right? What do we, how do we approach this? Because I think so much of what's going on is based on, you know, we're trying to spare children these, this trauma, you know, you talked about the, you know, generational trauma, historical trauma, right? The last thing we want is for a kid to spend, you know, a decade or more suffering this horrible, you know, traumatic experience of feeling like everything is wrong about them and they need to fix it. And they don't get to do that until they're middle-aged because we're just, you know, not capable of allowing it. Right. But then there's the other, the other side of that, of, you know, if we're too quick to kind of accept, you know, an eight-year-old's self-conception and then jumping on it, we might make a terrible mistake. And then, you know, there's, so there's, how do we do this? What do we do here? I think one of the issues, and and this this is actually why I like social emotional learning, because in something like social emotional learning, where you're looking at like different um, communication styles, different conflict management styles, different you know different different ways in which we all see the world, approach the world. When you learn that that's a reality, that the three of us um, have grown up in different times and places with different ideas, different views, different values. And so we see the world very differently. We interact with people differently. We frame things differently. When you know that about people, then you can, again, the terrible word nuance, you can interject nuance and you can step back and say, okay, so one group of people wants to make sure that kids learn from a really young age that there's nothing wrong with them. They're not bad just because they're a boy who likes boys. There's nothing wrong with them because they're a girl who likes to do boy things, right? Nothing wrong at all versus the group that says uh, there should be zero. I mean, literally zero teaching of anything that has to do with gender, sex, sexual orientation, gender ideology in the schools, period, because that should be handled at home by the family. Okay, so, well, what if the family doesn't handle it? What if they don't talk about it? Right. What if they handle it really poorly in the long run, even following their values? And you just have to be that kid that holds your breath until you're 18 and you can get away from that family for whatever reason, right? That's a reality for people. Um, but, but what ends up happening is that this idea of when you know that you are different from other people and other people are different from you and how I respond to things is different from how you respond to them, then what I can do is I can sit back and go, okay. What is driving that person to want to do things the way they're doing it versus that person? I don't know exactly, but I can at least go, it's something different. Maybe the same intention, but something different. But then I also can take it down to a much more personal level, which is 
how did that person who's making that decision about what is or isn't going to be in their classroom or in their school or in their department education, how were they personally impacted by something or things that happened to them or the people they love in their life? Maybe somebody they're married to or somebody they're good, close friends with, right? So like a person like myself, who's very much an external processor, you know, people can call me bad names. They can treat me really badly. And I walk around with a shield on that says, what? No, go away. I, you know, I just reject it. There are other people, like I said, who internalize those things. So I think this is what's happening is that the people who have internalized the most and are in those positions of being able to change curriculum, change lessons in the classroom, whatever it is, they're like, if they have that message and this, you've probably heard this idea before of like, never again, right? It's something that you hear from community groups of people, never again. And so I think they're a never again minded person, uh, but it's it's too broad. It's like not everybody who goes through a terrible experience is going to grow up to have a terrible life. Right. But I think that's what people think. It's like we have we have people that are excelling in our in our world financially, relationally, whatever ways who had really terrible childhoods. So we, we we can't just make that huge, that grand assumption and then apply it so broadly. And I think that's what's happening is they're, they're a little too, too on guard, too hypervigilant, which is a symptom of post-traumatic stress, right? They're kind of taking that hypervigilance that they have and they're applying it to these children they're trying to protect. And it's like, you know, children need to go through um, distress and they need to go through unfortunate experiences and you know you, you you wipe the knee you put a band-aid on it you send them back out to play there's certain levels of of harm that are going to come to children that we can help them process through and if it's something beyond that then we need to go and do whatever we can legally or in some way to take care of that situation you know if it's like a crime of some sort and i think bullying is one of those things like bullying is I, I definitely don't like bullies. I used to beat up bullies when I was in middle school. Um, <laughs> I have a real hard time with bullies. And so I encounter bullies all the time. There's a bunch of bullies in the trans community that I have to deal with on a regular basis. And so in, in an effort to like protect children from bullies, whether they be their parents or bullies in the school, they've sort of become bullies themselves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a really, it's not a winning um, strategy. Xander, do you, do you, um, think that what's going on now, which, you know, judging from what you're saying, sounds like you're, you're saying that this is an overcorrection that, that there, there was historical trauma that, you know, this community had been marginalized and discriminated for a long time. And it still is. Right. And it still is. And now that there's this swing to the other end of the, the pendulum, um, to the point where, you know, anything short of just affirmation of, of a kid's, um, you know, gender confusion almost is, is, is basically transphobic. So there's this, oh, there's this swing in, in the other direction. Do you think that's going to impact and roll back um, the, what has been, what seems like gains in, in tolerance and acceptance of, and not just trans, but for, for all the, the other alphabets, right? Because yeah. because now it's coming to a head in society in a way where the trans issue is butting up against feminism, um, against women's rights in sports, 
um, in other areas that that where the stakes are actually higher. Um, are you worried about? Are you are you seeing this trend where where the backlash is is starting to to um, cause the pendulum to swing the other way? And are you worried that it's going to overcorrect in the other direction? Well, my hope is that we find a a place of balance or homeostasis sooner rather than later. But this happens on the personal level, right? It, from the psychotherapeutic, you know, perspective, when people are going from, say, an abusive relationship out of one, sometimes the pendulum swings so far that they don't trust people. They they don't let anybody in their house. They don't they don't date. You know what I mean? Like so, but eventually yeah. the pendulum kind of swings and swings and they find balance. So, um, but in the interim, they're losing out on connection. They're feeling isolated, right? So, I think that this also happens on a on a grander scale. That um, there's also that adage of um, if you bring a lot of attention to something, it 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 makes it more um, prevalent, right? So, it's like most people have never met a trans person, but now that trans issues are all over the media. More and more people are reading about trans people. They're getting a very narrow perspective, both pro and con of trans people. Um, and so that's going to inform their decision making. And so they're they're going to want to jump to conclusions that say, oh, this trans thing is wrong. It's it's um, there's no such thing. And it's like, well, here we are. We are on the planet. We do exist. We've been in existence for a long time. Um, so what are you going to do about it? Um, so I don't want it to see, it seems to me that some of the rollbacks that are starting to happen in the states around um, putting laws, at least attempting to put the laws on the books or getting those laws passed that are restricting access to certain things like um, maybe hormone blockers or um, the locker room, you know, the, the locker room um, um, access laws. Um, those, of course, are for children, right? And and maybe even colleges, like state colleges. So that's outside of my area of expertise. But um, I think that the reason there's so many of those laws attempting to be passed or getting passed around the country is because of all this attention. So the attention, this pendulum swing is bringing all this attention. And it's sort of like when people say there's critical race theory being taught in the K through 12. It's like, well, it's critical pedagogy. And critical pedagogy is informed from a similar place as critical race theory. But if you just say critical race theory is being taught in the schools, they could sit back all smugly and say, no, nope, we're not teaching that. We're not teaching that. So I think it's similar to this trans issue in that when you encapsulate it in such this sort of generic, broad, um, overarching way, you can have one group of people say, look how bad it is. Another group of people say, huh, you're not even talking about us. You're not because binary sex doesn't even exist. Right. So there's ways to it's it's um, they're just they're just being dismissive of each other. And unfortunately, if these two primary camps have the most visible and auditory attention in our media, for the most part, like they do it, this is just going to go on and on and on. And that pendulum is going to swing from full one way to full the other way. Or maybe it's just like two separate pendulums. Um, and I don't, I don't foresee any, any positive coming out of this. The only way to get past this is for the, the majority of us who don't live in those two worlds to come together, not in agreement, because we don't all agree, but we can come together to support each other um, and not dehumanize each other. Right? There, there are ways that we can move forward without having to agree with or believe 
everything that the other is saying. But right now it seems like people can't get past, they want like a hundred percent agreement or you're a racist or a Nazi or a transphobe. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah. it's, it's a big problem. As you can see, like you mentioned earlier, the JK Rowling thing, like that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, Xander, you're, you're touching on uh, the, the um, soul of our of our final question that we ask everybody. But before we get to that, I thought of a potential rebuttal to some of what you've said, and I'm curious what your response might be. You know, regarding um, kids having to go through difficult experiences, and you know how that it's almost unavoidable, unavoidable, and the idea of you know maybe fast tracking their transition to try to get away from that you know, it's probably a bad idea, you know? So, um, but, but what would they, what would you say if someone responds to you by saying, well, you did it, you escaped, you know, the bullying and the mistreatment that you didn't like by transitioning, you, you got, you got your way and you got your way out. Why can't they, what's, you know, why, how come you and not them? Well, my, my gut reaction is to first say, well, I was an adult when I did it. Mm. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, I didn't need anybody's permission, so to speak. Um, but I mean, it's a fair challenge. Yeah. And I guess they would, they would just add, you know, to the adult thing, they would just probably add, well, wouldn't you want to spare them all that torment instead of, instead of having waited until you were an adult, you know, why, why should they suffer for that long if we can save them now? I think the uh, primary difference is that there is more in general in the United States, I think more acceptance for kind of blurring the lines of gender expression there's more acceptance of you know bisexual or gay you know kids so there i think that's different from when i was growing up another thing would be that i'm not anti-gender affirmation but i define gender affirmation in a way that's different from people who are anti-gender affirmation and what i mean by that is people who don't think you should ever affirm a child's gender and so this is what i say if it's not matched to their biological sex. If a child came to me and said, uh, I'll give you some examples of what kids say, uh, God made a mistake. I'm supposed to be a boy. I don't even know where they get that concept at such young ages. Um, or, <laughs> you know, they try to harm themselves because their body's not right. Um, and the parents brought them in to see me again. I don't see children, but if they did bring them in to see me, um, the first thing I would do with the kid is I would affirm Whatever it is they're saying, I wouldn't endorse it. I wouldn't encourage them to start blockers or hormones or have surgeries. But what I would affirm is their confusion, their fear, their um, questioning, their pushback on the expectations that they're already starting to pick up. I would affirm that. And I would help them explore where these things are coming from and what do you agree with and what do you disagree with and what would you like to do? And I would maybe introduce them through story or imagery um, to examples of what they're saying, because little kids don't know things like, you know, there's female, lesbian, female astronauts, or that there's, you know, like uh, gay black men uh, who play sports. You know what I mean? Like, they, they, they're growing up with stereotypes and limited views of things. And so being in or introduce them to this broader, which I think would help them to figure out, like, is this just me pushing up against what my family expects or what my schoolmates are expecting? Or is this something innate to me? 
And it takes it takes a number of years, I think, to really suss all that out because your child mind becomes an adolescent mind. And so it's something you have to go through. And so that's what I would affirm. I would affirm that they're having this question or this confusion or this unsettling experience. And that bullying sucks and nobody wants to be bullied and and we should be dealing with bullies in the school, you know. But going through a lifetime of hardship is different from experiencing hardship when you're a child. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to build resiliency and clearly I'm resilient. I have all that as well, but I also wanted to transition. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay, Xander, we're going to yes. move on to the, the last question, which we okay. always ask um, all our guests at the end. Um, our focus at FAIR is to elevate uh, a pro-human view of, of, of all the issues that, that we're, we're, you know, we're, we're dealing with today. And our question to you is, what does pro-human mean to you? And how can, how can everyday people kind of approach, approach their lives and approach these issues, debating these issues with a more pro-human lens? Mm. Pro-human to me means that I take into consideration other human beings, right? Uh, lived experience, their, their, the journey they've been on and which has influenced and informed their life experience and how they live in the world and to, to not prejudge that, right? To really, I, I might prejudge it because that's what our brains do, but I, but I can challenge those prejudgments and be more open-minded and, and take in and listen to what, what their issues are. And I think that if more people were doing that, just sitting down and I will have a conversation with just about anyone. Uh, there's nobody really off limits for me. To be fair, I, I cannot count among my conversations like Mr. Daryl Davis, members of the Klan. Um, kudos to him for that amazing work that he's done. Um, I would love to be so um, impactful as that. Because I think that's really, that's the work right there. When you can sit side by side with somebody who detests you. And I think I have had, I think it's, that's why I went to seminary is because I wanted to learn where people were getting their ideas from scripture that somehow I was wrong or bad. And, and so now, now that I've done that, I can have really wonderful conversations and even pretty close relationships with people who are very religious, who don't religiously accept me, but treat me very well. And, and I can live with that. That's okay for me. I, I, I don't need them to celebrate me or to, um, you know, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need to become a member of their family, <laughs> right? I just need them to see me as a person. I see them as a person. And um, we don't call each other names, you know. And we, we agree to disagree on some things, but we recognize each other's humanity. That's very beautiful. Um, thank you very much for joining us, for having this conversation. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to join the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform and by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For transcripts of podcast episodes, as well as access to exclusive Fair Perspectives content, visit us at fairperspectives.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.